Thanks, Alex, and good morning, everyone, and welcome to the start of a new series, a short series on Romans chapters 9 to 11. Someone has said our topic this morning is a nice, gentle introduction to spring. This morning, uh, we're going to just read the very beginning of Romans chapter 9, the first five verses of Romans chapter 9, just to set the scene. Uh, And this is what we read in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them among the, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul has explained the core aspects of the gospel, especially how Jesus Christ can save us both from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. But now, one of the most heartbreaking facts that Paul had to wrestle with is that God's chosen people, Israel, had generally not accepted Christ. The nation had been given many promises about their Messiah, but they did not recognize him or accept him when he came. As a result of the Jews rejecting Christ, the gospel was then preached to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles generally enthusiastically accepted Jesus as their Savior. So had something gone wrong? Had God's strategy in choosing Israel not worked? Had God's will not been carried out? These were some of the questions in Paul's mind as he wrote these three chapters of Romans. In exploring these questions, Paul will raise one of the most controversial topics among Christians today. The topic is sometimes called determinism or God's sovereignty and man's free will. Let me put to you the core question, the controversial question of this debate, I put it rather crudely. Has God already decided who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost? Or is each of us able to make the choice to accept Christ for ourselves? Put another way, before the world was created, did God have a list of all those who would end up going to heaven and who those who would be going to hell? Those who believe that the choice is made by God alone and that we have no say in the decision are sometimes loosely called Calvinists. And the teaching lies behind what today has been called Reformed theology. Communities like the Gospel Coalition promote this view enthusiastically. Those who believe that we have the ability to accept or reject God's offer of salvation don't really have a name, but sometimes they are loosely called Arminian. This morning I've been asked to give just an overview of the issues involved in this debate. 
Next week, we'll look specifically at Romans chapter 9. And then Jim will look at the role of Israel in God's strategy and history in chapters 10 and 11. And then he will end by giving another perspective on the debate. But before we start into this controversial topic, could I issue a health warning? Discussing this subject can seriously damage your Christian friendships. The debate can quickly become heated. Now, in our church, we have people who hold different views on the subject, but we still accept one another in Christian love. The particular perspective I'll be presenting this morning is probably the majority view in our church. So in that sense, it should not be very controversial for most of us. But we should all try to be respectful to others who may hold a rather different view. So this series will also be an exercise in Christian grace. I would like to begin by showing a diagram which I think maps out the key issues in the debate. Sometimes the debate is presented as though it is a choice between just two apparently conflicting concepts, God's sovereignty and human free will. But that's a little too simplistic. It's better to think of how we can reconcile three things, not two. So here's a diagram then. There are three fundamental pillars in the debate. First pillar is God's sovereign choices. In other words, what decisions has an all-powerful God made already in his dealings with humanity? The second pillar is human free will. Do we have any say in responding to God's offer of salvation? But there's a third crucial pillar which must be included to ensure a fair treatment of the subject, and that is God's justice. On what basis does God judge people? And how does God demonstrate that he is just and fair when judging us? So I'll be considering these three pillars this morning, and Jim may add a fourth later on. <clears throat> There's an important rule here for debating these issues. Any interpretation of Scripture which we are tempted to hold must be able to be reconciled with what Scripture has to say on each of these three pillars. If we have to ignore or contradict one of them and what Scripture tells us about one of these three, then our interpretation must be wrong. This should help us to avoid extremes and it should lead to a more civilized debate on a rather controversial topic. So this morning, I simply want to take each of these three pillars and bring to bear a few scriptures, a few relevant scriptures on each of them. I'm actually going to start with human free will. Do we have the ability to make a genuine choice about being saved when the truth of the gospel is clearly laid before us? I'll make just one observation on this. I think you'd have to agree that the Bible certainly gives the impression that we have a choice. For example, when Joshua had brought the children of Israel into the Promised Land, he ended his final message with this challenge. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. 
And he goes on to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was challenging the people individually to make the most fundamental choice possible. Which God would they serve? Joshua seems to have believed that the people were able to make a personal choice. Was he right? Or another time in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus approached Jerusalem shortly before his death, we are told that he wept over Israel, God's chosen people, with these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. So it seems that it is possible to resist what God wants for us. And even that famous verse in John 3.16 appears to offer eternal life to anyone who believes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, does whosoever mean what it appears at first glance to mean? Or is there a more subtle definition which isn't given at this point? The simple point I'm making, I suppose, at this stage is that the Bible gives the impression that each individual is able to choose on the question of salvation. Now, when I was young, I once asked a preacher how he could square this impression that the Bible gives with his belief that only a certain elect group can be saved. He explained it like this. He said, imagine there's a door and on the outside it says, whosoever will may come. But when you enter and turn round and look at the inside of the door, it says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. When you enter, he said, you discover the real truth that you were one of the elect all along. Now, at the time, I didn't know why I felt uneasy about that, but now I do. Because he was saying that there are two different gospel messages, a public one, which says, whosoever will, and a private one, which says, only the elect. But Galatians tells us that there's only one gospel, so which one is it? More recently, I asked another preacher this. I said, if you believe the real gospel is that only a preordained elect group can be saved, why do you not preach that? Why do you preach John 3.16 and tell people that anyone can accept Christ? And in a moment of commendable honesty, he said, well, if I preach that most people will not be permitted to accept Christ, that would hardly be very attractive, would it be? He obviously thought that the gospel he really believed was too unattractive or too unreasonable to appeal to unbelievers. So my main observation on this point, as I said, is that the Bible consistently gives the impression that we have a real choice, that we have free will in responding to the gospel, not necessarily in many other matters, but in that matter. But on the question of responding to the gospel, Either we do have free will, or it would take some very good explanation of why the Bible is giving us a false impression. Now, let's move on to the second of our, these three fundamental pillars. 
God's sovereign choices. I think we would all agree that God is all-powerful. We would agree that God has the right to make decisions about history and other matters. We also agree that God has made a number of sovereign choices in history and is free to choose, if you like, the path to heaven. But the key, key question is this. What decisions has God made? Not what could he make, but what decisions has he made about our eternal destiny? Now, we know from Scripture, for example, that God chose Abraham. Abraham was chosen to be the father of many nations, including Israel, and he was chosen to be the ancestor of the Messiah. But God's promise when he chose Abraham was that through Abraham and his offspring, all nations would be blessed. So God chose Abraham for the benefit of others. We know that God also chose Israel to be his special people. They were chosen to show the nations what God is like. We'll consider this later in our series. But for now, we can see, that, again, that God chooses people to do a job, to carry out a particular function, and it's usually to bring blessing to others. That is different from choosing for eternal salvation. In fact, as we read this morning, although Israel was chosen by God, they had not believed the gospel. That is what was causing Paul so much distress in this section of Romans. <clears throat> so being chosen by God does not in itself mean being saved. When we consider God's sovereign choices, particularly to do with salvation, we inevitably come to the subject of predestination. Now, some people think that predestination means that God in eternity past drew up a list of all those individuals who would be saved and everyone else would be lost. It's obviously impossible to cover this subject in just a few minutes. So let me briefly mention the scriptures which talk about predestination. The main passage is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which we won't take time to read here. Here, Paul makes certain statements like this. He predestined us to be adopted as sons, and he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, if you read those 12 verses from Ephesians 1, there are two things which would strike you. Firstly, that predestination always refers to the purpose, to the destination, if you like, or the future destiny. The pre applies to the destination. It's a glorious destination which has been preordained. The second thing you would notice in those verses is that all God's choices and plans are in Christ. In those 12 verses, I counted nine occurrences of that phrase, in Christ or in him, or something similar. Ephesians does not say that we are chosen on our own as individuals. It says we are chosen only insofar as we are in Christ. And I see if I can illustrate to you what I think Paul is saying in these verses. Imagine that sometime in the future, future you are at last able to go on a foreign holiday. You go to the airport, and when the flight to Tenerife is called, you board the plane. After an hour's flight time, you call the air stewardess and say, I've changed my mind. 
I would like to go to Rome instead for a bit of culture. Could you drop me off there, please? The air stewardess might <coughs> uh, ask if there's a doctor on the plane, or she might be more patient and explain to you that the destination of this flight is Tenerife, and you have no choice in that destination. You say, but I was always told that I have freedom of choice. I was told the customer is always right. And she says, well, you had free choice in deciding whether or not to get onto the plane. But the destination was preordained months ago by the airline. Everyone who boards the plane is predestined to arrive at Tenerife. So being in Christ is a bit like being on the plane. The destination is preordained, but that does not preclude exercising our free will in choosing to trust Christ. In fact, Ephesians says just that. We were not included in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul says this, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. In other words, believing in Christ is like boarding the plane. Before the foundation of the world, God chose the destination. He chose the plane. He defined the qualifications for entry, whoever believes in Christ. He even agreed that his son would, play, would pay the complete price for the tickets. Those were all God's sovereign choices. And when we believed, Paul says, we were included or incorporated into Christ. And at that point, we became part of the elect. I believe Ephesians teaches what some have called corporate election. All those who are in Christ are chosen rather than individual personal election for salvation. In that way, there is no conflict between God's sovereign choices and us exercising free will in trusting Christ. And finally, we come to the third pillar in our diagram, the fundamental principle of God's justice. It's really important to include this. Any interpretation of Scripture must be consistent with what the Bible tells us about God's justice. It's interesting that the Bible consistently says that every individual, after we die, will be subject to God's judicial process. After death, the judgment. God did, need not, did not need to do that. He did not need necessarily to put everyone on trial, but he has chosen to. It's clear from the consistent theme of judgment that God has ordained that each person will have the right to a fair trial. Now, just check that you agree with that, a fair trial. What other sort of trial would God promise? Uh, during lockdown, I've taken the opportunity to polish up on a bit of my history, and I've been reading recently the history of Stalin's purges during the 1930s. Stalin, in his paranoia, drew up a long list of all his enemies and anyone who might conceivably have been a threat to him. Those on his ever-growing list were brought before a court and found guilty. But they weren't real trials. The verdict was already decided in advance by Stalin. It was a travesty of justice. It was government by sovereign power with no real justice. 
That has happened many times in history. Often when you get a human dictator with absolute power, there is no concept of a genuinely fair trial. They sometimes go through the motions of a legal process, but it's all a charade. We need to be very careful that we do not think that God is somehow like that. God has absolute power, yes, but he does not abuse his power. God is not only fair when he exercises his justice, he goes to great lengths to be seen to be fair and reasonable. We are told quite a lot in Scripture about the process of the final judgment by the Lord himself. It will involve hearing evidence from witnesses, we are told, and proving to the guilty why they are guilty, so that even they accept their guilt. It will be no show trial. So on what basis will the verdict for some people be guilty? That question is dealt with extensively in John's Gospel. Now, obviously, we don't have time to cover it in detail, but let me summarize the key point which the Lord himself makes in John. For example, the Lord says to Nicodemus in John 3, this is the verdict, or this is the basis of condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. If someone sees the light, if someone sees and understands what God is like, if they see the evidence of his love and goodness, and they continue to reject and hate a God like that, and knowingly turn away from him, the Lord says, they are condemned, they are guilty. If they see the light about God, but they choose darkness instead of light, then it seems to me that they can have no complaint if their sentence is to live in their chosen state of utter darkness permanently for all eternity. Now, in John's Gospel later, we uh, discover something else, and that is that if a person is blind and can't see the truth, if they have not been given the ability to see the truth, then the Lord says quite plainly in John chapter 9 that such a person has no guilt. They will not be pronounced guilty for not seeing what they were incapable of seeing. The Lord makes this same point to Pilate, again in John's Gospel, in that amazing interview in John 19. Pilate had just boasted that he had the power either to free Christ or to crucify him. Now, we know from subsequent events that Pilate had not been given the power to free Christ. But the Lord Jesus replies to Pilate like this. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And notice this. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Notice the Lord's statement that a person's guilt depends on whether they have been given the power to choose by God. This tells us that if someone has no power over whether to accept or reject Christ, then they are not guilty. If a person genuinely does not have the power to choose Christ because God has not given them that power, then the Lord himself has told us that they will not be held guilty. So in summary, God's sovereignty does never override God's justice. His justice is not simply a means of achieving his will. 
God's sovereignty is always bounded by his justice and his fairness to people. The very fact that God has chosen to subject people to a legal process of justice implies that God has given us a certain degree of free will, some more than others, as we have seen in the case of Pilate. But when it comes to choosing or to rejecting Christ, if we had no free will, then they would not be guilty. Otherwise, the last judgment would just be like a show trial. Now, I'm sure some of you would love to come back to me on these points. That's why one of the advantages uh, that we have is being able to mute everyone. But I would like to finish just by reminding you again how we should debate this tricky issue using the diagram I showed earlier. So if you are discussing this with someone, even with me, then first get out a piece of paper and draw these three pillars and write down for each pillar the key points of what you think the Bible says about each pillar. Try to agree these points first with the person you're talking with before discussing any particular verse or any interpretation. And the other rule you should apply in your discussion is that any interpretation of any verse must be consistent with each of these three pillars. And I hope that you will be able to do that uh, graciously and to keep as many of your Christian friends as you can. Now, next week, we'll start to look at the text of Romans chapter 9 in more detail. In the meantime, may the Lord bless his word to each of us. Let's just take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty and the depth and the wisdom of your word. We thank you that your word does not hide from us some of the really difficult and challenging questions. But we pray, first of all, as we consider these issues, that we will be considerate and loving and respectful to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. But we do pray that we would uh, be able to take the whole breadth of Scripture into account and to come to an understanding that keeps us at peace with yourself and with us. We thank you for the wonderful gospel that we have in the Lord Jesus and the hope that he gives us. In Jesus' name, amen.